Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Kevin Roberts joins us now. He's former chairman of Saatchi and Saatchi, now chairman of BD. He joins us here at the pier in New York. Great to see you. Great to have you with us. And let's start with the Donald Trump and the messaging of, of Donald Trump. There was a promise made throughout the campaign by the then candidate uh, that he would be different as president, that uh, he would perhaps be less bellicose and less bombastic. Are we seeing, are we seeing any of that here in the, the first week of his presidency? I don't think the word less is in uh, the president's <laughs> vocabulary. I mean, revolution starts with language, mm-hmm. and this uh, presidency is all about the language, isn't it? Make America great again. What could be it's a call to arms. It's nostalgic. It's hopeful. It's optimistic. It's about change. It has a little bit of aggro in it. It's very involving. Who doesn't want to be part of that? As opposed to stronger together. Yes. I mean, please, <laughs> let me fall asleep because that just isn't impactful. And you look at the language he's using. I, I think he's doing something brilliantly. He's talking to three or five year olds, you know? Crooked Hillary, Lion Ted, build the bridge, you know, it's uh, 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 build the wall, it's drain the swamp. And now we've got the latest TV show, American Carnage, is coming your way. I mean, this language is very important to to the people out there who've been forgotten. He is talking and communicating to them. Your your background is in uh, advertising and messaging. Are are, Are you of the belief that this is all him, that he's come up with this, that there is some sort of purity to the messaging here, that it's not uh, fettered perhaps by having a big apparatus designing the messaging for, for this administration? I, I for think campaign. the apparatus would kill the messaging. I think this is pure, visceral, emotional, slightly unhinged occasionally. Uh, it's the way he thinks. It's the way he talks. It's the way he is. It's the way he's been. And I think people are going, he's real, he's honest, and he's authentic. Uh, But, you know, not all of this is for all of us, but he's real. And all the other politicians I've seen this year, they're saying, are not to be trusted. Mm. They're speaking in riddles and rhymes. And uh, I think it's making a hell of an impact out there. How how risky is it to be... uh I guess erratic might be an uncharitable way of putting it here, <laughs> but to pursue the same course that he pursued as, as, as when he was campaigning. In other words, uh, you know, he can he can speak off the cuff. That could fall flat. Is it inherently risky to uh, leave so much to chance? Let's say. Uh, I think in the orderly world of Washington, yes. none of this would <laughs> would take place, which is exactly why he's been voted in as president because people are tired of that stuff. You saw the same thing in Brexit in the UK. They're just tired. They're not taking it any more. Trump, for, since he was a teenager, has been outspoken, provocative, uh, and it's served him pretty well. I, I wonder if there are lessons to be learned from the way that he waged his campaign. Uh, in other words, are there politicians who watched that who said, 
this is how I need to emu- this is what I need to emulate going forward here, or is there something signature about Donald Trump now, President uh, Donald Trump, that is is too difficult to emulate? You've seen politicians and media completely reject everything he's done, and they're still continuing to do it. Yeah. You know, and they're living in this world of you know men in suits and all that kind of stuff. I mean, he is. Uh, setting himself up to speak for, you know, this sort of blue-collar, unforgotten um, majority. And he's given the silent majority a voice. Do they agree with everything he says? I don't think that they do at all. But they agree with the approach he's taking. And I think politicians have got not much to learn from this. I think what you've got to be learning about is, are we really in touch with the people of our nation, or are we in an echo chamber? Mm. And I think the last four to five months of the the Democratic uh, campaign was an echo chamber. I mean, he diverted all their attention onto him rather than the issue. And President Bill Clinton was saying there, as I understand it, Hillary, it's about the economy, it's about jobs. And that advice was rejected. And I think Clinton's instincts, the pre- Bill Clinton's instincts, were spot on. And I think if they'd have listened to him instead of focusing on, no, look, we all know that, that Trump's, he's just off limits. I mean, he's outrageous. The things he stands for are terrible. You know, we're going to focus on that and we're going to tell everybody what he's saying. Everybody knew what he was saying. But he was surprising with the obvious. The obvious thing Americans were worried about are being, hey, we're being disadvantaged and we're being played and we don't trust any of these people in Washington. And he spoke to them like that. Let me ask you about the politics of the moment. You mentioned American Carnage, joking that, that uh, that's the next new reality television show here. Yeah. There's some darkness. Who was joking? <laughs> Who was joking? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, there's some darkness to that as well, some, some menace. Uh, and how does he toe that line to, to channeling uh, the, the rightful anger that uh, many people in this country have toward government, toward uh, the status quo, toward the, the economic situation here as it exists now, but not going too far? He's not going to toe the line. He's not worried about going too far. Nothing succeeds like excess in his world. I mean, have you been in one of his places? Very gilded. <laughs> I mean, it's not the Pierre, is it? Yes, yes. You know, and he, he believes in that. Nothing succeeds like excess. And that's how he's going to keep going. He's not going to toe any lines. He's just going to absolutely keep driving this. Now, what he has done, which I think is pretty smart, is surrounded himself with some pretty top talent. I mean, when you look at Tillerson, when you look at Kelly, when you look at Mattis, these guys are not going to take any stuff that they don't like lying down. These are competitive, pugnacious, smart, proven, successful leaders. And I think Trump's happy to live with that. He's not a consensus manager. Mm. He's quite into conflict. He's into negotiation, even with his own people. He doesn't want one happy little family. He's going, no, 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 you know, we want to get things done, not good enough. We want to make things happen, right? And I think that's what America's waiting for. Well, make things happen, and look what he's doing. When I talk to his advisors, when I talk to members of Congress who've observed Donald Trump uh, in this new political environment a lot say, uh, this is a CEO governing. What does that mean in yeah. terms of leadership? How is, how is the governance of a CEO different? Uh, well, I, th- I think great leaders, you know, my, I wrote a book, as you know, 64 Shots, Leadership in a Crazy World, and we're certainly living in a crazy world. And the first thing that leaders do, irrespective of whether a sports team, whether they're a political party, whether they're in a, in a company or a, a startup, is that they have a dream and they inspire people to follow that dream. And his dream of Make America Great Again, as we've talked about, 
That's right up there. That's up there. It's hard to argue with. And people are going, yeah, yeah, I, I'm going to make America great again. And we talk about that in the bars. We talk about that in the pubs. And we do all the other things. <laughs> I think the second thing that leaders do in, in business is they make things happen. Mm. And a lot of political leadership over the last mm, few years hasn't been making things happen for many Americans. And they've just got tired uh, of that. Third thing, I think, is that leaders tend to surprise mm. with the obvious. And there's nothing sort of brilliant about what he's saying. You know, I'm going to create jobs and keep American jobs in America, and I'm going to stop all these people taking all our wealth away from us. It's pretty obvious, but he's, he's saying it very clearly. The studies we've done on a bunch of leaders, and, and the president didn't make my top 64 list, just to be clear, right, um, is that they work on the I words and the E words. And the I words are inspiration, mm. ideas, intuition, and impact. And he's reveling in those I words. I mean, is, this impa- is he an impactful leader or That's not? That's what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And look at the E words. Enthusiasm, yeah. emotion, energy, edge. Mrs. Clinton wasn't showing a lot of those four things. And the president really is enthusiastic, highly emotional, <laughs> incredibly energized, yeah. and very edgy. He's, he's got a lot of traits of successful CEOs. With Kevin Roberts, it's a tough choice. Tom Brady or Prime Minister May. Let's, see, mean, if we can get to, let's see if we can get to both here, but let's start with Theresa May. Heading to Philadelphia today for this meeting with GOP <laughs> congressional leadership. What do, you, what do you make of her approach here? What do you think her approach is going to be, addressing them today, speaking with the president uh, tomorrow in Washington? I think it's the single smartest initiative that she's made uh, since she took the job. Coming over here straight away, she's going to demonstrate to President Trump that Britain are the strongest allies he could imagine. And in this VUCA crazy world around him, Britain's the place to be. And I think she's taken some lessons. I, I grew up, one of the leaders I write a lot about is Margaret Thatcher. Mm. And I think the relationship that Thatcher had with President Reagan was tremendously advantageous to, to the West, right? But also to Great Britain. And Theresa May, I think, has taken the advice a Sicilian friend gave me, which is swallow the toad. <laughs> swallow the toad. So when, you, when you're faced with <clears throat> something that's not necessarily going to be super pleasant then just devour it and suspend your senses for a few seconds. And there's every indication that she's going to do that. She's going to come in, prove to the president that she's here, she wants to work, she's going to help him with a a great trade agreement, she's going to continue to serve up the best intelligence in the world. And she's coming here as the junior partner. I don't think she has any any kind of uh, sense of trying to dominate. And I don't think she's going to underestimate him either. Yeah, Tom has a question. I'll let him get yeah. in just a sec. But is, is the primary purpose, you think, that? Is it the trade deal? Is it getting that done as quickly as possible? Or is it, as you say, to quickly develop what could be a very important relationship? For I her? think it's the second, you yeah. know, because the trade deal isn't going to get done for 18 months, two years, right, because of the whole Brexit agreement with the EU and so on and so forth. But she's got to, I think, she's looking around the rest of the world and going, wow, this looks like a pretty lonely place now. Mm. You know, we're all here. We're Britain. Right. We're an island. We're going to stand all but it'd be so much better if we stood tall, helped by our, our big brother here. Kevin Roberts with us, with all sorts of experience uh, in, in moving to the next job. So, Kevin, you're a young Turk, and you're sitting at the Pierre Hotel. You've never been in a place this fancy in your life. The eggs are perfect, the sausage is perfect, and it's a job interview. What does the young Turk at a power breakfast say to the senior officer across the table. How do you 
act as a young Turk when you go to a power breakfast? You ask the senior officer what his purpose is and what are the things that are important to him, and you riff from there. You ask a question. The most powerful technique for a young Turk is listening. So you right, David? David's the young Turk here. <laughs> I'm taking notes here, Tom. Well, no, but I, I think this is something people uh, forget about, is there's a certain ballet to yeah. how you have a conversation. Mm. Let's move on, just because of time, Kevin, uh, to this Super Bowl. I think it's L. It's L-I. It's 51. Some, I, some yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And, and in Houston, right? We've had a lot of guests. I don't even know that. We've Texas, had a lot of guests that have told us, uh, Kevin, that, that people still watch TV. Is the formula for the Super Bowl the same as it was years ago when you were moving what? You were Mach, you were Mach 3, you were Mach 1, <laughs> Turbo Razors? This is the best marketing technique I've ever seen. You know, Fox are reveling in this. They're going to make $385 million this weekend. $5 million for a 30-second spot. And the whole nation is going to be watching the ads. What's it say about digital? This what doesn't does, happen. I mean, what does it say about digital if you're giving us the numbers you just gave us? That you better be digital as well. So mm. this is not either or. You better be using TV as your main screen, but that TV's got to lead the family of screens because everybody's going to have their mobile with them. They're all going to be watching the TV. They're all going to be texting, sending. They're going to have their tablets yeah. with, me, with them. So it's about getting the family is, of screens to come together. Is a TV ad different from an ad that's going to have a digital life to it afterward? I think it's, uh, you're going to see the most powerful ideas, not the ads. Mm. Ads don't matter. Having said that, if there's a Clydesdale, a baby, or a puppy in it, it's probably going to rate very well. Okay? But this is about the idea. You're seeing lots of ideas, and people are there watching, yeah. watching the, the brands communicate, which we don't really do anymore, mm-hmm. right? Kevin, thank you so much. Kevin Roberts, of course, I can't say enough about his book, 64 Shots. I really don't like leadership books, folks, and this is the only one I recommend, 64 Shots. Not only is it a beautiful book, handcrafted in Brooklyn, New York, but but beautiful black and white photos, but it just says a lot. Kevin Roberts uh, with us uh, this morning. set this up, David, with Robert Sinch of Amherst Pierpont. In the last not even 24 hours, 19 hours, we've had Barry Eichengreen in the Financial Times, the acclaimed academic from Berkeley, Ambrose Evans Pritchard in the Telegraph writing a blistering note on what President Trump doesn't know about the dollar. Bob Sinch, if you were to speak to the president, if you were to speak to his team today, what would you lecture them or advise them on where the dollar's heading? Well, I think that, that um, you know, each administration comes in with plans, and then there are unintended consequences and unexpected uh, items that develop. And I think the dollar could be a, a difficult one for this, uh, for this incoming administration, certainly when you think about a policy mix of, of looser fiscal policy and likelihood of tighter monetary policy. That's a classic prescription uh, for a stronger currency. And given the focus of the administration on trade relationships um, and the fact that the dollar is already a little bit above its long-term average, um, you know, I think it does create um, issues that they probably aren't thinking about. I think there's a lot of, of disagreement within the administration. There's a lot of disagreement on a lot of topics. We certainly see fiscal stimulus on one hand and then the incoming uh, nominee for budget director talking about budget restraint. 
But I think on the dollar, there are also mixed views, some who think the dollar should be a lot weaker and some who view the dollar strength as a sign of vitality of the U.S. Mm-hmm. economy. Um, so I think it's, it's, it, it, the jury's going to be out as to how they come down on this, but I do think that the, the likelihood is they will get a stronger dollar in 2017, and that may become an issue for them for the economy in 2018. We'll continue the jury theme of the week here on Bloomberg Surveillance. There seems like there's some uh, there's a split decision in the jury room right now. You had Stephen Mnuchin testify on Capitol Hill about the, uh, the, the strong dollar policy. Donald Trump tweeting about having a, a weak dollar. Do you have a sense of where they're going to come out on this? Uh, do you have a sense that they, they are, they're, they're wedded to the strong dollar policy we saw back with the Bob Rubin? You know, there are certain things that get into the into the sort of the lexicon and, and really don't deserve to be there anymore. And strong, strong dollar policy one is one I've, of I've them. I've committed the faux pas. Yeah. Well, no, but I think that, that there was this mindset that you had to keep saying strong dollar policy. And, and my issue, I haven't really understood for the last decade what that really means. I've never seen an administration take specific actions to strengthen the dollar. Mm. And so, uh, you know, I think that that there, there comes a time when when certain phrases have lost their usefulness. I think strong dollar policy has reached its time uh, and it's better for it to just disappear. And, and I think they're going to oh. they're going to do that early on in this administration. First of all, David, we're at the Pierre Hotel, yes. the power breakfast at the Pierre yes. Hotel. It's not faux pas, it's folks pas. Folks pas. OK, just so you understand that. Yes. Well, Bob, help me here with currency manipulator. Are we heading towards where President Trump and America is the ultimate currency manipulator? I think that they they are going to struggle um, with the currency story, and 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 clearly where the administration has has set its sights um, are on two areas. One is is Mexico, obviously, and the other is China. Uh, what are two big trading partners whose currencies have weakened up substantially? Well, those would be the Mexican peso and the uh, and the Chinese yuan. So, so I do think that 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 their broader objectives um, are going to be challenged by these currency movements. And, you know, China, uh, you know, talk about uh, in the, during the campaign naming China currency manipulator on day one. We've done, yeah. administration's done a lot of things. That isn't one of them. Mm. If you look at the Treasury's criteria, really three criteria for a currency being, or a country being named a currency manipulator, China's gone from meeting two to only one of those criteria. Their reserves are now going down substantially. Um, China faces a lot of challenges, and I think that um, that they're going to, you know, quietly let the currency move around and, and potentially soften up a bit more. Um, and and I think that that's just a, a natural function of the capital outflow that's taking place, and it's going to be very difficult for the administration to uh, to battle that uh, that natural force. Help us with relative strength here. How is the how strong is the dollar relative to how strong it's been historically? You know, the the way to look at this, uh, I think, is to in a broad long term perspective, is to look at the real trade weighted dollar. Um, adjusting for relative inflation. And, you know, you can look at some of the nominal dollar indexes, the, the Fed's broadest index, mm-hmm. and it's approaching its, its, its all-time high. But that really is because the dollar is up against emerging market currencies. They have higher inflation. You need to adjust for that over long periods of time. If you look at the, 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 the currency indexes adjusted for relative costs and relative inflation, right. Right now, the dollar looks like it's about four or five percent above its long-term average against emerging market currencies, uh, but much stronger um, against developed currencies. It's about seventeen percent 
above its long-term average against major currencies, which would include the euro, the yen, the yeah, pound, yeah. etc. So while the focus of the administration is clearly on trade relationships with a lot of emerging market countries, if you look at the dollar in a long-term perspective, it's actually stronger versus major currencies than it is against emerging market currencies. And I think that's something yeah. that they're also um, going to have to deal with as we go through 2017. I think more 2018 if the dollar goes up right. further this year. Robert Sinchammer's Pierpont with us. It is the Wheels Up Power Breakfast, the Wheels Up Power Breakfast at the Pier Hotel. We're thrilled to be back here. This has become very quickly a wonderful tradition for us at uh, Bloomberg uh, Surveillance. I look at dollar dynamics and I look at what CEOs need to do. I featured off a photograph in the FT the other day, the CEO of Corning, 70% of revenues abroad, and the CEO of Johnson & Johnson, 52% of revenues are abroad. What do chief executive officers of U.S. multinationals want? I'm confused. Do they want a strong dollar or not? Well, I think that depends on whether they're you know, primarily an exporter or an importer. Um, you know, currency, like, like many other prices, creates win- create winners and losers. Um, and in this case, uh, a stronger dollar clearly benefiting importers. A lot of those are, are the retail sector. And it hurts exporters. And most of those exporters, or a lot of those exporters, are in the manufacturing sector, which, of course, the administration has made a key focus of their policy going forward is to boost the manufacturing sector. So I think uh, a lot of what we see going forward will be a trade-off between potentially a somewhat stronger dollar and lower tax rates uh, for corporations in the U.S., which will increase after-tax returns. And I think that's that's a reasonable trade-off and probably will balance out the one that I think is the wild card would be this discussion of a uh, of a border tax um, a border tax system, which I think could lead to uh, a much stronger dollar in the short run, and, and that could be particularly problematic for the manufacturing sector. So I think given the complexity of a, of a border tax arrangement, given its potential impact on the currency, I would expect over the next few months we're going to hear less and less about the border tax proposal that was being put together in the House. You know, I, I, you mentioned that you haven't seen administration do a whole lot to uh, strengthen the dollar when you, when you talk about the strong dollar policy. What power, what determinism does a president have? What could Donald Trump do to influence the, the strength of the dollar? Well, you know, if you look at dollar over the last couple of weeks, it actually has been underperforming interest rates. Mm. Um, so I think the, there has been a short-term um, sort of announcement effect that they're moving away from the strong dollar policy. I actually think there may be something broader going on, and that is that, um, you know, we've seen a a very large reduction of Treasury holdings uh, by foreign central banks, and the biggest has been China. And you say, well, China's reserves are going down, so therefore their holdings of Treasuries are going down. Since June, when, you know, sort of the Chinese reserve numbers have started accelerating to the downside, Mm -hmm. um, Chinese FX reserves, June through November, were down $153 billion. Uh, China's holdings of treasuries in the same five months were down $191 billion. So they've actually been active sellers of U.S. treasuries since June. Okay. Bob Sinch, let's dive in here to the dynamics of China and the surprises of what they do with their piggy bank. They want to sell their full faith and credit U.S. paper into the market. Let's start with a why. Why do they want to do that? 
Well, it's not clear exactly what China is doing, but it's certainly. I think their view is that that uh, this is an opportunity for them to step up um, their presence in the in the global environment. Uh, certainly, as I said, uh, you know, just at the end of the last segment, over the last five months, ended November, they sold 191 billion of treasuries. The reserves were only down by 153 billion. That was a conscious decision mm-hmm. to sell treasuries relative to other assets. And the question is. Are they doing that, um, you know, to try right. to remind the U.S. administration that, in fact, they are among the bigger holders of treasuries? Who, who is on the receiving end of this? It's like a Brady pass in the Super Bowl. <laughs> Someone has to catch it. Who buys that paper? You know, it looks like increasingly that's coming back into, into the domestic environment. You know, uh, r- retail investors have been big, big, big sellers of treasuries as global central banks and sovereign wealth funds were accumulating treasuries. Um, it now looks like, as interest rate yields have been pushed back up a little bit, uh, that maybe the the uh, individual investor, retail investors, will come back into uh, you know finding these yield levels a bit more attractive. Um, but in general, you know, you wonder, you know, in this environment where U.S. interest rates are backing up, yet the dollar has been a bit weaker in the last week or two, whether this is another effort uh, or another action by China. Because certainly seeing higher U.S. rates and a weaker dollar would suggest that that some entities internationally are selling treasuries and selling dollars. Um, And so that looks like it's foreign flows. And obviously the higher interest rates go in the U.S., the more that's going to constrain the budget process going forward. So, you know, this is early days, but it looks like there's some interesting and potentially unpleasant dynamics beginning to develop in the uh, in the global capital markets and it's some of these tensions between what the administration would like to do and what some of the holders mm-hmm. of US debt are are trying to push back with Mexico doesn't have that China does let me step back a little bit and just ask you about um, what we know about trade policy and multilateralism the New York Times uh, running with a draft of uh, an executive action that would uh, radically change uh, the US role in the United Nations uh, say that that would extend to other ma- multilateral institutions I, I assume that might be the IMF and, and the World Bank. Um, what, are, what are the immediate or the near-term consequences of, of a more inward U.S. when it comes to relationships to institutions like those and to trade policy more broadly? You know, I think in the short run, um, that's not necessarily a, a, a terribly serious issue. I think that there are many, um, you know, in, in the conservative wing of the Republican Party who feel like the U.S.'s role in these institutions has been one of supplying money and not really getting much in return. Where it will matter is during the next crisis. And, you know, what we see is that the importance of of the United Nations or the IMF tends to wane during times, uh, when times are are calm. But when there's a crisis, that's when you want them to be able to step up and take some action. And, uh, you know, I think there could be some longer-term ramifications of this uh, as we get into, uh, you know, potentially into a next economic crisis environment globally. Will these institutions have the same resources and the same clout to step in um, and act? And and I think the jury, again, is out on that one. You know, we make short-term decisions. They have longer-term ramifications. Mm. Set the table for the speech that we're going to hear from uh, Theresa May later today. We were talking about the, the U.K.'s GDP numbers earlier. There, there has been 
some resiliency, you could call it, or strength since that Brexit vote. What do you make of it as you look at the UK and you look at Europe right now? You know, um, the UK economy, I think, has performed surprisingly well in the second half of last year relative to consensus, but I don't think it's been surprising relative to economic theory. Look, the, the, after the Brexit vote, there was a major decline in the value of the pound. You know, more than 10% on a, a trade-weighted basis, closing in on 15% on a trade-weighted basis. If you're a UK consumer and you see the pound take an abrupt shot downward, what do you do? You buy in anticipation that prices are going to be higher in the right. future, and that's what we're starting to see. So I think part of what we've done and part of the strength in the U.K. economy in the second half of 2016 was anticipatory buying by the consumer sector. Retail sales have been very strong in the U.K. in anticipation of higher prices. 2017, we're going to get those higher prices, and I think if we brought forward some consumption, we could be now entering into a period where the economy does begin to soften up a little bit, I don't think the production sector, the manufacturing sector in the U.K., uh, and export sector is large enough to offset that. So I think after surprising strength in 2016 yeah. and some complacency, we could face a little bit more well, difficult environment during the next six to nine with months. With all your uh, experience, and particularly your multi-sector cross-asset experience, how much theta or time function on the x-axis do you put whatever we're going to see out of Donald Trump and Washington. I mean, if they do a fiscal game, if they do an infrastructure game, if they do this, that, and the other thing, do you look at it as a two, three-quarter, four-quarter exercise, or can you really get a chronic, persistent good to where America's going? You know, I think in the, in the very short run, a lot of what's been done has been done by executive action. Um, and in the U.K., a lot of what was done early on um, was a bit of discretion on the part of, of the, uh, you know, the prime minister. What we're seeing in the U.K. now, and I think we're going to see in the U.S. as we get into, uh, into the middle part of this year, is that the details of the weeds are a lot more difficult to, uh, to traverse. And I think that, that after a lot of these executive actions, now we're going to get into the real policymaking, um, you know, mm -hmm. agreements on, on, uh, on fiscal policy, what comes first, tax cuts, or, uh, or infrastructure spending. Yeah. I, I think Prime Minister May is now experiencing, in terms of the details of going through Parliament and, 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 and uh, parliamentary agreements, et cetera, what the administration might be facing come the spring. Right. Bob Sinch, thank you so much. Great to really see you. appreciate it. Yeah. Well timed and all that with Amherst Pierpont. And he put out a research note this morning which delineates and provides a massive distinction on Bloomberg surveillance between those that chow down on the marginal piece of bacon at the Wheels Up Power Breakfast at Pierre Hotel and those that chow down on the second or third kale smoothie at the Wheels Up Power Breakfast, the Pierre Hotel. In this case, we will, we will make an exception and not respect the copyright of our guests. We will put that out on social media. We will put media, that so out on social media. <laughs> we do not protect the copyright of our guests when they they notice the massive that differential in zeitgeist here. research note there available on But Twitter. what a great day to have Bob Sinchon. I mean, really, the Barry Eichen Green essay and the FT was just extraordinary, yes. David. Uh, a real dissertation, a clinic on um, the second and third order outcomes of a stronger U.S. dollar. Yeah, I hope to talk to him again soon. I think we last spoke to him uh, from Berlin. I think he was spending some time at the American Academy uh, in Berlin. But Barry Eichen Green of UC Berkeley, great on trade yeah. and, and uh, macroeconomics generally.
brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. David Gurr and Tom Keene at the Wheels Up Power Breakfast here at the Pierre Hotel. Now joining us on the Spectrum Enterprise phone line, Spectrum Enterprise Nationwide, fiber-based network and IT infrastructure solution, is one of the nation's jewels, the economic historian Brad DeLong of Berkeley. He is a liberal that liberals hate because they'll go right after him if they're stupid. And, of course, he's must-read for all conservatives trying to recalibrate and readjust. Professor DeLong has written the definitive piece on trade and the Trump administration. Look for that at Vox. I've sent it out the last few days. Brad, so pleased you could uh, join us today. The heart of your essay is to have the courage to compare the United States to Germany. I thought Germany was getting everything right. Isn't it Germany gets it right and America does not? Well, Germany has gotten it right with respect to its trade and its export policy over the past 50 years. Um, It's done everything that you should be in order to be a good, long-run, export, technologically progressive powerhouse. It's used government money in order to carefully nurture its communities of engineering practice. It's put a huge amount of effort into on-the-job and formal training of workers for manufacturing jobs. It's kept the value of its currency low, so the market doesn't send false signals to companies that it should be um, that they should shut down. And it's run budget surpluses and thus trade surpluses, um, thus performing the function that a rich country ought to perform of helping the rest of the world industrialize by finance their investment. And of course, if you finance their investment um, by lending money abroad, they then use that money to buy your manufacturing goods. This has been a big change from the policies the U.S. has followed. The Reagan deficits, the Bush 43 deficits, the strong dollar policy, a rich country not lending money to the world but becoming instead the world's banker. Um, And those big policy mistakes, instead of them, the manufacturing share of our workforce is now 9% rather than about 12%, but that has nothing to do with the trade deal. Brad, help me here with the DeLong prescription for President Trump. Given his politics and given the voice of people that voted him into office, what is the DeLong to-do list given Mr. Trump's proclivities? Um... Well, you know, the hope, um, I will really say it was a hope, um, the dream, the wish, the absolute fantasy, um, was that he meant what he said um, about making a health care system in which every American was covered um, by insurance, making a greater health care system than Obamacare, and meant what he said about getting American workers jobs um, and getting America's good jobs. Um, But as far as employment's concerned, he's calling for higher interest rates, Um, says cheap money is bad, even though there are no signs of inflation. Um, He's calling for for big deficits, 
um, big government deficits that yeah. will push up demand for money. And those interest rates and the deficits are going to raise rather than lower the dollar and make it hard to export. As Larry Summers is periodically ranting about um, yeah. in the pages of the New York Times, if Trump doesn't like a strong dollar, why does his trade secretary like one? Why right. are all his policies guaranteed to preserve one? And it must be very clear. Um, let's and be very clear. no. Yeah, and he was supposed to be pharaonic in terms of his wanting to build things in order to modernize America's infrastructure. You'd expect a real estate developer would want to be a builder. Right. Um, well, let's dams, bridges, Let, high-speed rails. Brad, all let's, have, let's have David Gura jump in here, and we'll have you back for our next break as well. David, jump in with a few questions. Yeah, I was, you know, you're, uh, the, the essay that Tom mentioned, the one that you wrote for Vox, is, is uh, so thorough and extraordinary. And, and part of the essay I liked the most was about manufacturing. There was this... Uh, sense throughout the campaign that what Donald Trump was going to do is bring manufacturing jobs back. You you write in detail about what happens when, when a factory closes. Uh, outline that for us here. If, if, if I'm working for a factory and the factory shuts down, what's likely to happen to me when it comes to, to uh, my next job? Um, well, it very much depends how high the unemployment rate is when your factory shuts. Um, and the go-to places people here are Till Von Vachter and Stephen Davis who have traced what happens to people in large layoffs. It's a bad thing. Um, if your factory shuts, your income over the next decade is likely to be about 10% lower if the unemployment rate is not high. Mm -hmm. Which means you'll have a spell of unemployment. You might have to move, but you'll get another job about where your job would have been had you stayed on it. If you lose your job when the unemployment rate is high, by contrast, it becomes simply awful. Um, your income over the next 20 years is going to be 30% lower than it would have been otherwise. Um, to lose your job in a depression, um, to lose your job in late 2008 and 2009, or in 1982, 1983, is a life-changing um kind of destructive event Brad along, uh, which is why it's so important yeah which is why it's so important if you have a depression to make sure you have a very rapid v-shaped recovery afterwards yeah well, and not the, just be happy when the clap stops something that the president said that then a candidate said on the campaign trail was um, you know that he was going to bring these manufacturing jobs back how long is it going to take before he realizes that he's going to have to make some investment uh, in training he didn't talk a whole lot about training but i imagine that that's going to be a, a policy priority that he doesn't maybe elect to make but has to happen um i don't know um there doesn't seem to be a great deal of logic here right the crowds on inauguration day were told were the largest in history um the electoral victory was the biggest landslide in 50 years Brad, you know, that donald trump is basically a pitch man Brad, um, want, he'll make a pitch. I, want to come I don't back know with, what policy is yeah. attached to that. Very quickly here, um, I, I want to come back. But when we look at China and the WTO, is that salvageable after the collapse of TPP? Quickly, and I want to come back on this. Certainly salvageable for China. Right? That um, were a huge market for China. Mm -hmm. The fact that we have been a huge market for China has gotten us an awful lot of very good stuff cheap um, over the past 15 years. Um, has been a major benefit. Well, 
to Let's Americans, especially Americans who yeah. voted for Trump and worked at Walmart. Whatever your political proclivities, Brad DeLong's tour de force at Vox on trade. That is our discussing point here. A little more time with Professor DeLong. Brad, you talk about a second gilded age. A lot of America flat on their back has entrusted a gazillionaire from New York to write this inequality that we have. How does a Republican Congress, how does Mr. Trump begin to take the polish off our second Gilded Age? Um, I don't know, right? That is, I have a quest. I have a note here from Barry Eichengreen in the office next door saying, A, he's extremely pleased to be on your show next week. (laughs) And B, could I make sure to stress the fact that all of Trump's policies seem to be calculated to reduce employment and manufacturing by what they do to the value of the dollar um, and to the United States savings investment Mm -hmm. demand supply balance, and yet nothing to increase it. Brad DeLong in the the Back in the Reagan administration, you had had a president who had come in and promised to do everything. And everyone in the administration thought they had his baton, and they fought, and he refereed. And eventually, the policies we think of as Reaganism emerged. But no one could have predicted that what they would have been beforehand, except for spending more money on defense. This is very similar. Yeah, Brad, final question, if we may. And thank you so much for mentioning Professor Eichengreen. Folks, this is what we try to do at Surveillance. We've got Professor DeLong with his tour de force in Vox on Trade and Eichengreen of Berkeley writing in the FT today, an absolute clinic on dollar dynamics. Brad DeLong, if we get Eichengreen's worry of a strong dollar, what does that do to Mr. Trump's optionality in trade? It means that he can blame China and possibly blame Germany, although he hasn't blamed Germany anymore. That something has gone wrong, that the value of the yen has somehow fallen, um, and China must have done something to create that, therefore we blame China. But as Barry is almost sure to say next week, the real that market the supply and demand for currency is not mm-hmm. something you can ignore. No. Um, the big Trump tax cuts are going to raise the demand for dollars worldwide. Um, plus, bashing on the Fed to raise interest rates will raise demand for dollars even further and okay. push it up even more and give Brad, American factories a much harder time. We've run out of time. Congratulations on changing the global and the national debate with your essay on trade. Professor DeLong is at the University of California at Berkeley. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.